Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I stand before you today as a defeated man. Christ has fought for me. Christ has captured me. Christ is defeating and punishing every nefarious scheme that is seeking to take me away from him again. I am most definitely a defeated and captured man. But there's no way that I'm going to hang my head in shame about that and, and nor am I going to drag my feet in this defeat because Christ has won me and now I belong to him. And to be a captive of Christ, how good is that? It, it, it's a thing of joy. Last week, Paul was using agricultural terminology you know, sowing generously, reaping generously, or sowing sparingly and reaping sparingly. And agricultural terminology, well, that's generally pretty all right, isn't it? Most people don't mind it at all. But this week, Paul is using military terminology. And the thing with military terminology is, well, some folk just aren't so keen on that. It offends their sensibilities. The very thought of things military is so offensive to some people they just couldn't possibly condone using language or similes or metaphors to do with that, especially in the church. And if you're somebody who is offended by military terminology, well, you'll get offended by a fair bit of what's in the Bible and you'll probably get offended, be uncomfortable perhaps with the terminology that we're using today. But I'm not going to apologise for that. Uh, we're, we're in a war we're in a spiritual battle. It's a battle for hearts and minds. It's, it's a battle of truth against lies and worldly opinions against the wisdom of God. Be in no doubt, it, it's a war between Satan and Christ. And we're right in the thick of it. It's a war that finds its way right into the church. And it's often fought at a congregational level in a church. It's a war where Satan's evil attack often comes from outside of the church, outsiders bringing new and strange teachings into a church that perhaps has been a long-term faithful church for generations even. But new stuff comes in and it takes people away. Right, we're studying here what, what we know as Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Um, it's actually the fourth one that we know of, but there's only two remaining in existence today. So it's called 2 Corinthians. And at chapter 10 of this letter, where we're up to today, it seems to take a distinct change in direction and tone. 
So much so that some people think it's actually another letter that's been tacked on. I don't agree with that. Um, I think it, it, it flows well enough for me. But in this section, Paul is mounting a defence for himself. Um, we've already seen glimpses of Paul defending himself in, in other areas of this letter. And it's really ramping up now. Now, you might be sick of me saying this if you're a regular, but I'm going to have to say it again because there might be new folk listening to this today who haven't heard it yet. Paul planted the church in Corinth. He started it off, he was the one who led them to Christ. But then when he left that church to, to go and plant other churches in, in other places, some false apostles from out of town came into Corinth and they staked their claim upon that church. Right. So Paul had started it up, he got it up and running, and then he moved on, and then these others moved in and go, aha, we're going to take over this church. And in doing so, they, they actually brought false teaching into that church. And as part of their takeover, they tried to discredit the Apostle Paul to try and take his power away from him and, and, and cement their own place as the leaders um, in that church. And it seems like they were claiming to be apostles themselves. Righto? So... In this letter, the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul is trying to pull this church back on track. And at the same time, he's having to deal with the false apostles undermining him. And so understandably, he's got some pretty harsh words to say to those fellows. But apparently that was actually a bit out of character for Paul. Now, for any of us who have been reading the Bible for a while, we... We can read the letters of Paul and we find sometimes he's quite harsh in what he has to say. Um, but it seems from this letter we're starting to pick up that perhaps his demeanour in person was actually very different to that, to quite meek and gentle. And, and reading between the lines, it actually comes, becomes obvious that in, in other correspondence he's had with them, he's found out that, that they've been poking fun at him. It seems like they've been saying, oh, he's all very tough when he writes his letters, but he's just a weakling in person. You know how weak he is in person. Pay no heed to him. And Paul is defending himself. I'm writing this letter in meekness and gentleness, but unless you lot change your ways, you watch out, because when I come, I'm going to be pretty jolly tough. Uh, my paraphrase. You see, with the gospel... There's a time for meekness. There's a time for gentleness. But in defence of the gospel, sometimes there is a need for toughness. I used to be a minister in a particular mainstream denominational church and, and all sorts of false teachings were coming into that denomination. And what that church needed was for a God-appointed leader, a man of God, to stand up and to take a strong stand in defence of the gospel. It needed somebody to be tough. They only had to be tough against a few folk who, who were twisting scriptures and, and discrediting the gospel. But, alas, the way of that church was, their way was to make a place for all sorts of views. And in that church, they valued that more than the truth of the gospel. And anybody who unyieldingly opposed false teachers in defence of that gospel, well, they were told to just put up with it or sh shut up or put up with it. 
and they're pretty much all gone now. There was no place for them in that church. Sometimes, in defence of the gospel, we need to be tough. So, to liberate, to restore the position of this church in Corinth, to get them back on track again, Paul was going to have to launch a military campaign, as it were, a spiritual battle which involved destruction, capture and punishment. But before he launched this campaign, first he had to understand the arsenal, the weapons that would be getting used, the weapons, of course, that would be used against him and the weapons that he would be using um, himself. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh... Now, when he's talking about walking in the flesh here, sometimes Paul talks about walking according to the flesh in terms of uh, the sinful nature. Uh, he's not using that term here. He's using it literally. Um, for though we walk in the flesh, it's like even though I'm a bag of meat and bones, um, even though we live in a physical world as physical beings, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. There's been periods in history where terrible atrocities, military campaigns, have been carried out in the name of the church and in the name of Christ. Political ambition, the lust for conquest, greed, have been using Christianity in, in various times as an excuse to wage war. Now, that is not God's purposes. That's waging war according to the flesh. As disciples of Jesus, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Uh, now, let me put a, make something very clear here. Um, I'm not pushing a pacifist, we never go to war line. Uh, in fact, as disciples of Jesus, it is our duty to be good citizens of the country in which we live. And our country needs Christians in the armed forces. And if God is calling you to a career in the military, don't ever be put off because you're worried that a military career would be at odds with your faith. You see... There will be times when it might be, as in any job, in any job, in any career, there will be times when you will behave very differently to, to others who, who you work with. And it's no different in the armed forces. But simply being a member of the armed forces and going to war to defend your country, um, that is not opposed to Christ or the gospel. Being a Christian isn't a barrier to serving. Right, so having said that, let's come back. So what are the weapons? The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, when, when Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, he told them about the spiritual armour. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And, and that's why there in Ephesians it then goes on to describe that, that that's why we need to put on our, the armour of God. 
And if we read the description of the armour of God, um, sometimes we, we, we try to think of it as all mystical and everything. It, there's nothing mysterious and there's nothing mystical about the armour of God at all. It's about how we live. It's about the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. To put on the armour of the God is, is to live in righteousness and obedience as God's faithful, as, uh, faithful disciples of Jesus. And so we have the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have righteousness. We have shoes of readiness of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Right? There's nothing mysterious about any of those things. As we live as disciples of Jesus, let's be truthful. Let's practice righteousness. Let's be ready to preach the gospel. Let's keep the faith and depend on our faith. And let's trust in our salvation and, and know that God has saved us. And let's read the word of God and know the word of God and obey the word of God and speak the word of God. But you might say to me, but, but Michael, I fail in all of that. My faith isn't really that big and I've told a few porky pies and I, I, I don't always do the right thing and... I actually find it really difficult to share the gospel. I shy away from it. It terrifies me to do that. And sometimes I've even doubted my own salvation. And I know that I don't love God's word as much as I should. Sometimes I go weeks without reading it. And sometimes I just don't understand it and I can't remember it. But do you know what you're telling me if you tell me this? You're telling me that in my own strength, I can't do this. Hey, you've got it. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. That's why this is the armour of God. It's not the armour of Michael. And it's not the armour of, insert your name here. It's the armour of God. The, the, the evidence that we've been born again is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, how do we know if the Holy Spirit is present in our life? Well, we don't go looking for certain gifts. That's not the, the evidence. The evidence is when the Holy Spirit is present in your life, he is changing you. Holy Spirit is transforming you. You're not the same person you were. You're not the same person you were when you came to faith. God is transforming you and making you to become more like him. Your conscience is being tuned to God's conscience. Things that didn't used to bother you and you used to go and do it without, without bothering you at all, without blinking an eye. Now you find abhorrent and you're ashamed that you used to do those things. It's because God is changing you. And if we truly desire for God to transform us into the person that he wants us to be. And if we pray for these things and work with him by his Holy Spirit, he will give us more faith. He will help us to delight in the truth. He will help us to do the right thing. He will empower us to share the gospel when we actually step up and give it a go. And the closer that we come to God, the more that we realise that how wonderful this salvation is that we have and we'll celebrate that and we'll worship God because of it. And as our relationship with Christ deepens, we're just going to want to hear from him more and more and we're going to want to spend our time in his word, 
we'll love his word more. Righto? So the weapons we have aren't guns or swords. This isn't about burning heretics at the stake, drowning witches or shooting up mosques or bombing abortion clinics. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What's a stronghold? Well, the Greek word is literally a stronghold or a fortress. It it is a strong enemy position that's difficult to take. Now, when we Christians start using a bit of Christianese, you know what I mean by Christianese, when we start using a language all of our own that nobody else has any idea what we're talking about, and sometimes we try to use that language to, well, it makes us sound very super spiritual. And sometimes we might start talking about strongholds. We're going to tear down these strongholds and we, and we use it in relation to some kind of power that Satan has over a community or some kind of power that you can't see. Some people can sense it. Other people can't sense it. And, it, you know, it might be a power over a community or over a person or over a church. And, and we talk about something that we need to pray for and ask God to deal with it to set us free from its bondage. Now, that's good. And it's bad, right? It's good because we need to do these things. Uh, We do need to pray for God to set us free from such bondages. But if that is our primary view of what destroying strongholds is all about, then we are going to completely miss the point of what Paul is saying a stronghold is. So what does he say? Well, he tells us here what that strongholds are. Right, so he's talking about weapons that have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then in verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Are you getting this? What are the strongholds of Satan? Well, in this case, it's words, arguments and opinions that get raised against God. Actually, it's it's even more specific than that. Remember, um, this battle that Paul is fighting is within a church. This isn't an argument that he's having with a group of atheists who are outside of the church. In the Corinthian church itself, there were arguments, there were lofty opinions being presented against what it really means to know God. You see, the false apostles or false teachers were teaching them, you know, you need to do this and do that and live like this and believe this. It's okay for you to do that. Don't worry too much about that. And just be like this and and you'll know God better. But it was all false. They were false teachers. They were false apostles. And the Corinthians, there were some Corinthians who had been convinced by them, not all of them, some had. And and what they had been doing is they were allowing a stronghold of Satan to take up a position within their church. Satan had been building their fortress right under their noses. They thought that they were being led to a higher knowledge, perhaps a more intellectual truth. Perhaps they're looking for something that would put them more in tune with their culture. 
But it, but it certainly wasn't bringing them closer to God. It, it was arguments and, and lofty opinions that they had, which were actually against God. I believe that the Christian church of today is being assailed by arguments and lofty opinions against the knowledge of God, perhaps more than ever before, certainly more than in living memory. The most obvious example that, that I comes readily to my mind is the so-called progressive Christianity movement, and I'll put that in, in, in inverted commas, Ooh. progressive. There's not much progressive about it at all. It's, I think it should be called regressive. And the progressive Christianity movement, they pride themselves on their intellect. And instead of reading the word of God and seeing what God has to say on a matter, they start off with their own lofty opinions. Well, this is what I think, and so then I'm going to prove it. And in their mind, oh, God's just old-fashioned. He's something that the ancients who didn't know any better used to believe in. But we're much more advanced than that now. You can't expect people to believe that sort of stuff anymore. And, and filled with pride, they elevate their opinions on, on all sorts of social issues, moral issues and, and, and spiritual matters. And, and usually their, their lofty opinions are shaped and formed not at all by God, not at all by God's word, but pretty much mostly by the world. And then... They pride themselves on their own intellect and they pat themselves on the back at, at how good they are at putting together an intellectual argument against God or against God's position on whatever matter it is you're talking about. With fancy words, they present what they believe is a convincing argument. They appeal to worldly wisdom such as science and philosophy and sociology and they use a, a distorted worldly ethics and they appeal to emotion. Now, the thing is, most people I know who are that way inclined, and I know a few, sadly, um, most of them actually believe that they're doing the right thing. They are so deceived that they believe that they are doing God a service. But because they elevate themselves above God and because they depend on their own intellect to, pre to present and defend their own opinion, which they place well above God's revealed word, they're actually building a stronghold for Satan. And where are they doing it? In the church. Now, for me, that's, that's the most obvious example that I can think of. Of course, there are so many other examples, and some of these I'm about to list might, might be included as coming in from other directions. Some of us might get very perplexed. Why are there churches who are willing to marry same-sex couples? Why are there churches where Christian men and women live together before they're married and the church doesn't seem to see that there's anything wrong with that? Why are there churches where the message is, God wants you to be rich, God wants you to prosper, He wants to make you successful? Why are there churches who preach hatred and racism? Why are there churches who will never teach about sin and our need to repent of sin? 
How, how could it come to this that, that in such short a time, how could it come to this where, where the gospel that is preached in some churches is, is not the gospel at all? It, it, it's so completely different and so completely removed from the gospel that, that the apostles taught us in the scriptures. Do you know where it begins? Arguments. Lofty opinions. Now, now the word arguments I'm using here, it, it's not having a barney with somebody else. It, it's putting forward a reasoned argument, right? Arguments and lofty opinions, which are raised against the knowledge of God. You see, for many people, the old, old, beautiful gospel message well, that's just not enough for them because they, they, they want something new. They want something exciting. They, they want something that might, might appeal to the worldly nature. And, and some people, let's face it, some people just get excited about something new. You know how some people, they might have a perfectly good car, but hey, I've just got to get a new one. Well, some people are like that with, with God and with the church and with what we know about things of the Spirit. I've just got to have a new truth, a new experience, a new something. They're never satisfied. And in our world of social media and on the internet, there's, there is all sorts of crazy teaching confronting folk and getting shared and liked and tweeted and retweeted. And you share it enough and it gets enough momentum and sometimes people think that, hey, this is actually credible. Look at all these people who, who are sharing this and believing this and liking this and loving this when it's actually rubbish. If anybody, any of us have any doubt about people's willingness um, and um, susceptibility to being led astray and to believe a lie... Surely the current pandemic and the false information that's on the social media at the moment that's getting shared, um, surely that should remove all doubt about how easy it is for some folk to get led astray. And that's what it's like with the church. Even in the church, it spreads like that. A belief, a view, an opinion, a teaching, a lofty idea... Of one, it might only be of one person, but it spreads throughout the whole church. And Paul says, we destroy these arguments. We destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Now, how's he doing that? Well, he appeals to truth. Remember your spiritual armour? Truth, righteousness, readiness of the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God. Right? So if we stick to these things, if we stick to the truth and if we stick to the Word of God and, and all of the other stuff, um, all of those lofty opinions and all of those fancy arguments, they just don't stack up. When somebody is trying to bring in just utter rubbish into church, just open up your Bible and go, well, it actually says this here. Don't believe it for a moment. Yeah, you know, it just it just gets destroyed. Now I reckon God must have a jolly good laugh sometimes at at people's efforts and what they say and what they believe. So that, 
going back to that example of those so-called progressive Christianity, I, I get a laugh out of it. I'm sure God must. Because the argument that they often make, which many of them believe, is we need to change what we believe so that we can appeal to a younger generation, right? We can't expect this next younger generation to believe all of this spiritual mumbo-jumbo stuff. And you know what? From what I've observed, the churches that have adopted the opinions and the arguments of progressive Christianity are fast becoming the, the fastest declining and the oldest congregations in the nation. They are quite literally dying out. And you know what? On the flip side of that, do you know what sorts of churches are those that are growing the fastest? Do you know what sorts of churches seem to have all of the young people in them? And I'm including well-educated young people. It's churches who preach from the Word of God. It's churches who proclaim the same old, old gospel that has been loved by generations of disciples of Jesus. It's churches who have strong leaders who will use the spiritual weapons of God to expose false teaching as they speak the Word of God. That's the sort of churches that are growing and growing and increasing in number. Isn't that well, it's amazing and it's wonderful. So the first stage of the campaign is to bring the church back on track. And, and it did that through destruction. That's the military term, destruction. The destruction of the false teaching. How? Counteract it with the truth. Use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, to reveal it for what it is. Destroy it. Then the next stage of the campaign was capture. He says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The, the Greek word there for thought, there is noema, which means thought or mind. It's to do with our intellect or reason. You know, some people think that when, when you become a Christian, you have to leave all your intelligence at the door. You, you, you give up all thoughts. You give up all reason. You, you lose your mind. Perhaps you need to have a partial lobotomy to become a Christian, get, become brainless, get your brain gone. See, they have this opinion that, that faith is the enemy of thought and it's nothing of the kind. Some of the most brilliant people I know are disciples of Jesus. Some of the deepest thinkers, men and women with profound understanding, are loyal disciples of Jesus. You see, the Lord wants us to use our minds for Him. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. When we become disciples of Jesus... We don't lose our mind. We surrender our mind. We give our mind to Jesus. We hand it over to him to become captive to Christ. Let me give you an example. In a war, when an army is defending a military asset like a port or a bridge or an airport, 
if the enemy is seems to be getting the upper hand and it's beginning to look like the advancing army is going to overtake them, what they do is they lay charges so that they can destroy that asset, they can destroy that 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 airfield or, or that bridge or whatever it is that they've been protecting because they don't want it to fall into the advancing army's hands. Why not? Because if that advancing army gets it, they'll use it and they'll use it against them. And let's bring it back now to Christ. When we give ourselves over to Christ, when Christ is victorious over us, God doesn't want us to lose our minds. He wants us to surrender our minds to him. Our intellect and our ability to reason and and our ability to argue a case, he, he he doesn't want us to lose that ability. He wants to capture that ability and to use it for his purposes. Now, we all know those special people who are particularly, they seem particularly obnoxious. They've got an argument for anything. They'll argue that black is white or white is black. You know the sorts of people I'm talking about? And when it comes to sharing your faith, they're not a Christian and you share your faith with them and they'll have all of the answers against you and, they've got, and they'll put up this massive argument and you go, but I just believe it. Now, the thing is, sometimes by the power of the Holy Spirit, those people are one for Christ. And you know what? They're the sorts of people that when they're one for Christ, you don't want them to lose their ability to argue a case because now... God's going to use their ability to argue and to present an argument to convince others of the truth of the gospel. He wants them to to be able to state the, the case for Christ, to reason for Christ, to argue the case of the gospel. Now, I think of some brilliant people I know, I've heard speak. Uh, I'm thinking like on, on Vision Radio, I... I hear the likes of Ravi Zacharias or John Lennox sharing that, uh, apologists they're called, that their ability to be able to speak to a nation, uh, speak to the world and just present the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christ. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Through spiritual weapons, Paul says that we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Don't let your thinking run amok. Bring it captive to obey Christ. Don't be influenced by false teaching. Use your mind to argue against it. The aim, to obey Christ. All right, so... Destruction of prideful opinion and destruction of arguments of, the, uh, of false teaching. Captivity of the thoughts of minds, sorry, captivity of our thoughts, captivity of our minds, captivity of our intellect for Christ. Thirdly, punishment. Ooh, this could be a touchy subject. Verse 6 being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Is there a place for punishment in the church today? Well, actually, yes, there is. There must be discipline. If anyone continues to teach a false gospel, 
if the message that's being presented isn't the word of God, but simply worldly opinion, well, well, that can't be allowed to continue in the church. Why not? Because that is building a fortress of Satan in Jesus' church, and it just doesn't belong there. Now, verse 6 refers to two different groups of people in the Corinthian church. It, it has to, because it says, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete, right? So two groups of people. There's one group who, have, who he's trying to bring to complete obedience so that he can then punish every dis disobedience of those who haven't become obedient. I think the best way to see this is the punishment is for the disobedience of the unrepentant false teachers. But until the Corinthians were won over, any actions against the, the false teachers would have been pointless. It would have been ineffective because a church has to want to honour Christ. And so discipline in a church only makes sense when our minds are surrendered to Christ. And what does the dis this discipline look like? Well, there's no place for false teaching in the church. So if the false apostles refuse to repent of their false teaching, ultimately they'd be put out of the church. That's the sort of punishment we're talking about. We're not talking about taking them outside and giving them a flogging or whatever. It's excommunication, expulsion from the church, if, if you're going to keep teaching that rubbish here, you're not welcome. Now, for some churches, this would be a pretty tough message. Um, hopefully not for our church because um, I do most of the teaching in the Bush Disciples Church and, uh, yeah, let's not go there. Um, so for some churches, this, this would be a pretty tough message. That there might be somebody listening to this today and you realise that there is a stronghold of Satan that be, is being allowed to establish in your church, of which you are a member. There might be lofty opinions and arguments and reasoning being presented in your church, by might be by the minister or it might be by somebody else in the congregation. And let me just say, usually it's by somebody else in the congregation. Um but they're presenting some kind of weird teaching that some people are actually starting to believe and it's taking people away from God. And you might have been noticing this happening and think, oh, well, I guess I let sleeping dogs lie. But you haven't realised how serious it is. You haven't realised that, that a stronghold of Satan is actually getting built in your church. Please don't let it continue. Do not allow a stronghold of Satan to continue in your church. We're in a spiritual battle. The weapons that we have are the weapons of God to fight in his campaign so that we can free his church from the fortress of Satan that is sometimes found within it. Destruction captivity, punishment. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, it's with sadness that we see strongholds of Satan taking hold in the Christian church today. And when we see no godly leader who will stand against it, Lord, it breaks our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be vigilant, to destroy the strongholds of Satan with your word of truth and with the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, capture our minds. We surrender them to you. We give you our thought. We give you our intellect. Lord, please help us to love you with our whole minds. And if you ever find our intellect drawing us away from you, capture us, O Lord. And Heavenly Father, give us strength and give us resolve to never allow a stronghold of Satan in the church and to put it out because although it masquerades as good, it is not of you, it is against you, it is seeking to cause us harm. Lord, we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our precious Saviour. Amen.